<laughs> but, I would, but I would rather that. I would rather 500 people in a thousand hate it than let's say 975 think it's okay. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. as long as there's still 500 that love it passionately, the trade-off is that, you know, for me, the people that really connect so powerfully and so deeply to it, they're kind of the real reward to being brave. Hello, my name is Anson Chen. Welcome to Unconsciously Speaking. Today's episode, we invite Luke Germain, who's one of the world's finest mind readers to the show. Luke is currently in Edinburgh performing his show Strange Power, which I got to see three nights in a row. It was absolutely amazing. If you ever pass by, you should absolutely go see it. We had a good conversation after the show about his journey to become a mind reader and about taking risks as artists and following your bliss. I hope you enjoy the recording because I really enjoyed talking to him. Enjoy the episode. Please welcome Luke Germain. Thank you for doing this. You're very welcome. Uh, so you're, we're at Edinburgh right now where you are touring, you're doing your show, your mm. run of Strange Powers. That's Let's right. start with that. So, um, I suppose the first thing to talk about is the Edinburgh Festival, because that's kind of interesting and bizarre and chaotic. The Edinburgh Festival is a theatre festival that takes place in Edinburgh, Scotland, as the title implies. Uh, but it's kind of a crazy energy. You've been here for a few days, so you've seen it. Yeah. There's 4,000 shows uh, across the city every day. Yeah. So, in 24 hours, 4,000 performances. So, the whole city just gets taken over by... Crazy performers desperate for an audience, um, <laughs> of which I am one. Uh, so, Strange Power is the title of the show that I'm doing, and it is a show that is based on a kind of improvisational approach to mind reading. So, audience members arrive and they focus their minds on questions, the kinds of things you might ask a psychic or a tarot card reader, and then I try to provide an intuitive answer to those questions. So it changes every night because it is genuinely, and that's something that magicians and mentalists always say, oh, it's different every night. But it genuinely is different every night because it genuinely is based on the information that I get to work with and the people that are in the audience. So, you know. Yeah, I, I have been back two days in a row and I'm going to go again tonight. Uh, it genuinely is about them. And this is yeah. what we in magic and mentalism called the Q&A, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so getting industry specific, yeah. uh, it's a questions and answers act, yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, it's strange that really the work that I do is really very classic in nature. You know, I am a questions and answers act. I, this particular show is a blindfolded questions and answers. It uses billets and pencils um, yeah. and I'm there with the blindfold on, giving the answers to the questions. So it's, uh, you know, just describing it, it's very, very traditional, very, very classic, but I try to sort of work within the boundaries of that classic framework, and then maybe every now and again just step a little bit outside to do something a bit more unusual or a bit more avant-garde or a bit stranger. I mean, you've seen it multiple times now, um, so maybe you're better place to describe it than I am, to be honest, because yeah. sort of the joke that I always make is when people say like, oh, what's the show? I say, I don't really know. Because he's never seen it. I've, I've, I never, you know, <laughs> I spend, I, I mean, that's, that's the absolute truth. I spend 45 minutes of the hour in a blindfold. So I don't really ever see 
what's happening. I just hear it. So I've heard it many times, but I've never seen it. Yeah, so basically it's mind reading in the context of people asking questions about their lives or their futures. And it's so... It's, it, it's, it's, it's this thing that I've never seen before where the, the room just has this kind of emotions around people's life stories mm -hmm. and how and how you just become one with them and kind of just get into their problems. And man, I was, I was really surprised. I know I hear you talk about this, but then people people cry, people laugh, people sob. There's just so much emotions in mm -hmm. the room. You know, I think sometimes magicians and mentalists, especially if you've not got experience with the questions and answers act, which is most, um, it takes a long time to really build to a point where you can do the questions and answers act. Uh, and, and I'm only there now through being really quite obsessive about that being the goal that I've always set for myself is getting there. It's not, I don't mean that to be like, oh, you know, others can't do it. It's just that I've really focused on it for a long period of time. But when I do talk about it to magicians that, that maybe haven't seen it or, or maybe just haven't seen the way that I do it, um, and I say, like, oh, yeah, people cry. And, like, magicians sort of think, like, oh, maybe it's not true. Like, you know, maybe it's, like, like hyping it slightly. But, yeah. but it, it's not. I mean, you've seen it multiple times now, and that, that does happen because of the, the sort of... It's the overwhelming feeling of being understood and kind of, like, tapped into this vulnerability that they have. Mm, and that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for a show where people feel like it really is about them. And that for a moment, there's someone that's really listening to them. So what makes people ask questions about them, their, really their lives? At what point do they make that switch? It's like, this guy can really give me answers. Mm. I mean, it's definitely a two-part question. It's a, it's a big, both questions are very big by themselves. I mean, I think, why do people ask questions in the context of entertainment? Right, that's kind of where we're where we're heading in this yeah. question, I think, right? Like it's because not like you're going to see a therapist. You know, you're you're going right. for a show. You're buying a ticket. And that's also something that's very important on my my sort of artistic scale, as it were, is that it doesn't ever switch over into being either a pity party where everybody's like sobbing and in tears and it's just depressing. Yeah. Or that it loses an element of mystery or or show or theatre, right? Like it has to maintain all of that. Um, so why do people ask ask those questions within the context of an entertainment product, within the context of theatre, I think it's because the human condition is so powerful that given the opportunity to ask a question about your own future, that regardless of the context in which the opportunity is prevented, there is a large percentage of people that will take that opportunity. I don't think there's anything clever, I don't think it's anything theatrical that I do, I think it is base level that as human beings the most interesting thing to us is ourselves. And then the second most interesting thing are the people we care about and others. So I think given that percentage, it's a little bit like hypnosis in that regard, that you know that, you know, whatever that rule is in hypnosis, I think it's the 10% rule, right? right. Like roughly 10% of any group will be susceptible and highly susceptible. I think it's similar in Q&A that, you know, within a group of any size, there will be a percentage. I don't have any kind of number for that, but there'll always be a percentage that given the opportunity to do it, will do it. And additionally, I think because it's in the context of theatre, it takes away the pressure of the weirdness of it. Because imagine you're a normal person and you think to yourself, well, I'm kind of interested in, in what a mind reader or a tarot card reader or a crystal ball reader would say about my life. But you've now got to tell your husband that or you've got to tell your wife that and you've got to go and leave your home on a wet Wednesday afternoon and travel across town <laughs> to go to the palm reader's office, right? Like, 
the minute it crosses over into that, it feels weird and you feel a bit like, oh, maybe I'm an idiot. So you're Whereas, buying into that thing yeah. now. Whereas if you do it in the context of a show, it's almost like a bit of fun. Yeah. Right? Like, it almost gives the audience that are on the fence about, like, oh, well, I'm interested in what a tarot card reader would say. Yeah. It, but because it's in the context of a show, it's fun. Yeah. So I think that takes a little bit of the pressure off as well. Yeah. Um, I mean... And also, I see, I see one thing that you do very well is people often, I don't know if that's true, but, but people come in from this fun aspect of thinking of a question in their mind, perhaps, some are serious questions, yeah, yeah. but some very are serious. also lighthearted. Yeah. I'm, but I'm, then you turn it into something that is very real and genuine and, and, and open-hearted. Uh, my, my ultimate goal with the Questions and Answers Act is to actually connect with people, right? Like one of the sort of... Um, I don't know if this is a bit of a pretentious, this kind of thing that a pretentious artist. No, this is saying. what the this is what the podcast is. About. Oh, it's, it's, it's all it's, for a pretentious it, artist. Exclusively for the pretentious. <laughs> great, 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 um, great. Well, we'll, we'll get on just fine. Now. That's good. Um, so the but maybe this is a bit of a pretentious thing to say, but I do think that there is a part of every performance that's a little bit damaged, right? Like on some emotional or psychological level. Whether we whether we're brave enough to front up and admit that is a different thing. But I do think that. I, as a performer, have some level of damage inside of me. So when I do Q&A, bizarrely, it's as kind of therapeutic for me as it is for the people that I'm working with. Like, it's a genuine exchange of human connection. And at a level that, to me, is much more... And I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word healing because then we suddenly find ourselves in weird New Age territory. Yeah, but the word that keeps coming up to me is compassion. Yeah, there is a real sense of, like, two human beings sharing some compassionate exchange that's focused on something that's really meaningful to that person. And finding the common ground. Yeah, you? yeah. And that, all of that for me is kind of, the goal of Q&A is not just to answer the question, the goal is to make a true human connection. Yeah. Um, we've sort of veered off of the original question now, but that's kind of where, that's why I think people ask questions in, in this context. And why I, also why I think they don't ask silly questions, because I think it's about the framing, right? It's about the framing and about the level of trust that they have in you and, and it, what you can instill in them before the moment of the Questions and Answers Act actually begins. They've got to feel like it's a real thing that's happening. They can't feel like there's the potential that they're going to put something important and personal on that, on that question card, and then somebody's going to walk on stage and make fun of them. Yeah, being right? exploited. Yeah, so you've got to try and avoid all that, and that's why I don't... I think, I think we've now, in I say we, like, you know... The, the way that I run the show, the lights, the sound, the tech, all of that stuff, the, the group that runs the show, I think we've found a way that allows people to feel safe, but also for it to feel dangerous enough that it's sexy. It's, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Because if, it, if it's too safe, it's boring. Right. But if it's too dangerous, nobody wants to engage. Right. So you've got to find some middle ground of like, oh, well, this is edgy and I'm excited and it's a bit dangerous and I want to know what it's about. And when it's dangerous, it, yeah, it, it's just, it, it hit the right spot. Yeah, you, you, but it's a real balancing act. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I do occasionally get questions like, you know, what did I have for breakfast? Right. You know, people that are just doing it because it's a lighthearted, like, fun kind of thing, right? That they, right. That they want to engage with, but maybe aren't ready to engage with on a really personal level. So one thing that I'm really interested in is... Well, how, how long... You, you've been doing this for 10, 10 15 years. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you've answered questions from people from all over the world. Yeah. All kinds of different ages, different races. What is some kind of, like, common 
things that they're really looking for deep down inside? Because I think you must have seen kind of you got a big consensus of what people are really asking for. What mm. like what's underneath their thoughts? I, I mean, honestly, I think if you'd asked me this question like three years ago, I would have had some like, oh well, the number one question is this, the number two question is that, the number three question is. You know, I think, uh, unfortunately, the world that we live in now is very chaotic. Uh, it seems to be on all sides of the globe, it's chaotic. And people are kind of, I feel, are scared and a little bit uncertain of their own futures and the future that surrounds them, right? Like, so I'm noticing, if anything, the trend now is that the questions themselves are becoming more and more unpredictable, right? Like the days of dynamite mentalism, for example, it's not necessarily that clear anymore. It really isn't. Um, but I would say the number one question is, will we have children? The number two question is, will I get a new job will I, or, or will I move? Right. So it's still about about the same themes. But I think where the questions are coming from has changed. So like five years ago, somebody might have said, will we move? And it would have just been a question that really was about, will we move? Will we go to a new home? Whereas now, with a sense, at least in Europe, right, especially in England, where we've got Brexit on the horizon, a lot of people are uncertain about their finances, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen when that happens. So when somebody puts something like, will we move? I'm finding in the actual reading that their question is really coming from a place of a fear of lack of security. And that's maybe just in the zeitgeist, as it were. So, so it's more about, it's less about what kind, like, what's the questions? It's more about where does the question come from? Right. What emotion is the question born from? And you feel like right now there's this kind of air of concern, of fear of the unknown. Yeah, well, I, I tell you, a good way of explaining this is that if you'd asked me this question three, three, four, five years ago, I would have said that there was a very consistent question, which would have been, shall I buy the? And it would be some kind of large purchase. You know, shall I buy the Harley Davidson motorbike? Shall I buy the Ferrari? Shall I buy the yacht? Shall I buy the new house? Right now, whether or not that was somebody dreaming about owning a hugely luxurious object, or it was a real question, it was somebody that was expressing the idea of spending money, right? right. Like they felt secure enough in their own existence and their own sort of socio-economic and political surroundings to consider the idea of buying the big luxury thing. They're looking up. Oh, they're looking up is a great way of saying it. Yeah, they're looking up. Uh, now, I can't remember the last time I got that question. I can't remember the last time I got a question about, like, doing an extravagant thing or... Whereas, so so rather than, rather than, like, people feeling like they're in a place where they can, you know, kind of stretch out and fill up the space, I feel like people are very focused right now on protecting what they have and who they love. And in some regards, that means kind of building a fence around themselves almost. Yeah. So that changes the kind of, again, the kind of emotion that the question is born from. Because, you know, will I get a new job? If we're on an economic boom, will I get a new job means promotions, new ambitions, new position, new amounts of power, new amounts of money. Whereas now, will I get a new job might mean, you know, I've lost my job because we're yeah. on a downturn, right? So again, it's about like paying attention to I, I think the zeitgeist would be the right word, like the public consciousness. Yeah, it, it feels like it's beyond money and just about the collective consciousness of how people are feeling as a whole. The, the life that they are currently experiencing, right, which is, which is of course, based on where you live and um, 
you, you know, where you live, your work, your family, all of those things. But in general, I would say that just on a personal level, I, I feel now that the questions that I'm being faced with are far less predictable than they were in the past. Like five years ago, I, I maybe could have, you know, before a show, <laughs> like written down, you know, six themes and put it in an envelope and at the end of the night opened it and they would have been right. <laughs> yeah. right? Like I maybe could have done because, because it was really quite consistent. Whereas now, I, I'm quite often taken aback by it. But the, but the other thing that may also be part of this is that five or six years ago, I was beginning to establish that this was my one skill. Right. Whereas now, it's kind of like, this is the only thing I do. So often people are coming to the theatre understanding that that's what I do. So they may also come to the theatre armed with a question in mind that is more specific or is more unusual right. because that's what they're... That's what their understood relationship between me as the performer and them as the audience is. And they're more ready to give you that's, a specific that's, thing that yeah. applies. So that's, that's possible. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is, it's possible because I've been doing it for a long time now. Yeah, or both. Yeah, or both. So how, how, do, how does that... So, so you're very in touch in, in this case. You're very in touch with the kind of... Because of what you do, yeah, you're very in touch with the collective consciousness of what people are thinking and how people are thinking. And you answer questions, you are in touch with these problems. I mean, only through the filter of being a theatrical mind reader. Right, 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 right. Like, of course, yeah, I like I'm, I'm, as an artist. Yeah, as an artist, I'm in touch with as what a pretentious. I, yeah, as one of those, one of those artists <laughs> with an E. An artist no, but with what, an e. What, what I was going to ask is how does, that, how does that change the way you deal with your personal problems? Well, I think one of the things that, the, one of the turning points for me was that I. I've done mentalism my entire life, like literally from 14 years old, I was doing my reading. I did my first show when I was 16. I had no other, no other way really. Um, and it's always been very deeply a, like a passion that was driven. Like I've never, can't imagine doing anything else. But you know, in my sort of early 20s, I'm 34 years old now, but in my early 20s, I had like rough times myself. Like I was an alcoholic and like, and all of that stuff, like, really bad year but all of those experiences I think are part of what allows me now to do Q&A because I'm not a very judgmental person like you know if you've lived like a completely blemished three existence and and you know you've you've been you know you've been born rich or you've been you know you never had a bad thing happen in your life or you've never made a mistake or you don't feel regret or any of those things maybe it's easier to be judgmental but like you know, having having had both highs and lows in my life, I don't really have that sense of judgment. So when I see a question that maybe others might make a judgment call on, I don't feel like I apply that same judgment because I feel compassion for people that are suffering. Because I was once a person that was suffering, right? Like, I was a person that was suffering that needed compassion and didn't get it. And that made my suffering worse until eventually I managed to fix that in myself, right? But I think that all sort of feeds into the way that I don't make judgments. So when it comes to like being connected now to to get right 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 back on, how do I solve my own problems? I don't I don't have any more insight into solving my own problems than anyone else does. I think the greatest lesson from Q and A is that maybe the best way to solve your problems is to speak to a complete stranger. Right. Like genuinely, maybe that's the greatest power of Q and A is that you get to talk to a complete stranger, the mentalist about a problem and open your heart and have a conversation if, if the mentalist intentions are good right right like if if the intent that they bring to the stage is to really connect with someone not to maybe 
try and sell a private reading or sell some psychic development kit or something like that, if their intention is to really connect with someone, maybe at the very core, that's the actual power of Q&A, is just the stranger's perspective. Or or to talk to someone that you trust about it without, without I think very often also people run away from their actual questions. Yeah, well one of the things that I, I notice in Q&A is that I get asked a question, which, but the question itself isn't the actual question that they want to ask me. And you've seen me do this quite a lot, where, yeah. where I'll, I'll actually go in a completely different direction than the question that they asked, and then at the end we discover that that's really what they wanted to ask. And that comes from kind of non-content therapy. So like as a technique, I'm quite interested in this area of non-content therapy, which is just a, a form of therapeutic aid. Um, and, and the idea of non-content therapy is something that I sort of really put into Q&A. Uh, I, I do feel like if you choose to do Q&A, you've got to have a responsibility to help people. Right. Because you're, you're basically taking people's problems and exploiting them for applause. Yeah, that's... That's basically that's, the heart of it, right? That's, that's, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, so if, you, if, you're, if your intention is not to really try and be the best that you can to help that person in that moment, and, and that means equipping yourself with a certain level of understanding about the ways to not harm others right you know then then maybe q a isn't the right tool you know like so for me in terms of how q a helps you solve your own problems i, I think the, the major lesson is that it's just about connection i think we become more and more disconnected from each other anyway and i think a lot of problems stem from a feeling of disconnection from a feeling of not having anyone to listen to you or no one that you can talk to or that you're alone in your problem, right? It's kind of no surprise to me that, just in my own personal life, like when, when those times were rough, I think most of that came from a, a sense of isolation that nobody understood what I was going through. And now I take that from inside of myself and put that on stage in the sense of, I think a lot of people imagine that their problems are so insurmountable that nobody else would ever understand them. And then when they find themselves in a theatrical environment, I don't think they always necessarily put the extent of their question, the extent of their problem, because they are protecting themselves socially in that environment. They're not going to really be as frank as they might be with like a therapist in a lot of Sure, sure, sure. But they, they do put an aspect of it. And I think, I don't, I don't know if Q&A is ever going to solve anyone's problems, like in a real sense. I don't think people come to a theatre, get a reading from me and, and, you know, emerge a completely renewed human. Like, I don't think that's happening. But what I think might happen is that simply the exchange of discovering that they're not alone. Yeah, and very often I, I as I'm listening to someone else's problems, I also think that could very well be me mm. or I've been there. Mm. And I and I bet other people are also getting that out of it. Well one of my favorite things to do yeah, in Q and A and I can't I can't always plan it because I do work with the information as it comes up in real time. But there's a lovely thing that can happen where multiple people are facing the same problem and you work with multiple people and then you realize that you've actually created an accidental support group. Yeah. And that's what I call it. I say like, you know, what's interesting is that right now not only did you get an amazing, uh, an amazing experience here this evening, but you also met a group of people that can all help each other get past this problem together. Yeah. And, and I imagine that those people do go and have a quick chat with each other because why wouldn't you? Right. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I've never. No, I, I just I saw the people just start to gather after the show. They they want to talk about how you know, but also like you know, I, I feel this this sense of I know this person because because of that open conversation they've just had. Yeah, it really does break barriers pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an amazing amazing thing, you know. Like, uh, so what what 
okay, so a lot of um, my friends and the people around me are the kind of people who have this kind of artistic pursuit that they really want to go after. Either they have a job and they want to go into painting or they are already an artist, mm. but there are certain choices that they're afraid to make. Mm. You have made some very bold and interesting choices. So just to put this into context for people who are not magicians or mind readers or fortune tellers, you've gone through the journey of all three mm -hmm. and you just kept breaking the, you just never went on the commercial path and you mm. never did when the, you always followed an artistic way, you know, to kind of guided through your heart. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very kind way of saying it. Another way of saying it would be that I am a victim of self-sabotage. <laughs> very <laughs> right? stubborn. Yeah, yeah, like another way of saying that same thing would be like he, he just completely sabotages any availability of commercial success. Uh, but, but I think the truth for me is that I'm, in terms of like making tough choices, I don't find it hard to make the choice because I'm doing the thing that I'm doing on stage first and foremost for me, which is selfish, and I get that like this is almost at odds with what I've just said about Q&A, but like when it comes to building the visuals, the music, the aesthetic, the feeling, the mood, the lighting, and all of those like artistic choices, that stuff's for me, right? Like that's a vision that I have in my head that I want to make. And there's never really a case of it being a choice, it's more a case of like I genuinely feel that I have to make that thing. And my life would be better if I didn't feel that way. Honestly, my life would be better. I would be. I certainly would be more financially successful. I certainly would have bigger theatre audiences. I certainly would have more commercial power if I didn't have that feeling inside of me. Because, because what I do essentially is, I think all of the artistic expression that I try and build into my work is essentially a filter that cuts away audience members until only those that are essentially the perfect person for my show would want to come and see my show. And yet those people right now are packing your houses as you're touring through UK. Yeah, but only after lots and lots and lots of doing it. Right. Right, because because I think of it as being like a mirror, right? So I'm, I have lots of tattoos. Even though on stage you don't necessarily see those because I often wear like a suit and a shirt with a collar and so on. But like right now I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt and my tattoos are visible and so on. So like we'll, when, we'll attach a photo. when I um, <laughs> trust me, you don't want to see how I look. It's boiling hot in Edinburgh. Um, when but when I first started like doing shows, my promotional photos all had the tattoos very visible, and it wasn't out of like taking a photo because I thought the tattoos were badass. It was taking a photo like that to make sure that if you didn't like tattoos for some reason, if you were really offended by tattoos, you couldn't accidentally find your way in my theatre. Yeah, don't right? come. Yeah. So it, it, it's always this case of it, like I want the work to become a mirror so that the people that are drawn to it are the kinds of people that would maybe have the same interests and influences and feelings about the world that I have. Because then again, it's another form of connection. So what would your advice be for artists or people who are in the creative industry to make that bold choices? Like how could they... Take that step. I, I mean, I think it all comes down to, this is a, this is a really non-committal answer, but it comes down to what you need to do, right? Like, there's a number of people in our industry that ask me this question, you know, like, oh, I want to do something that's more, you know, edgy or dark or, or more expressive or, or whatever it is. And I just sort of feel the answer is, well, if, 
if that's the case, then do it. And I know that sounds reductive to say it like that, but I can only speak through my own experience, and my experience is that I don't know any other way of doing it. Right? Like, I can't walk out on stage and do a show that isn't true to the vision that I have inside of me. And it's not, I don't mean that as in like, oh, I think it's beneath me as an artist. I mean, I physically can't do that. If I walked out on stage doing, like if, I, like if we sat down now and in the next hour we're like, okay, let's work out the most commercial mind reading show right. and we wrote it. I physically could not walk out on stage and do that show justice. Like I can't do that material. It would be bad if I did that. Yeah. So, so I don't mean it as though like, oh, those choices are beneath me. I mean, literally, I would do a bad job at doing that thing. So I only know it through my own experience, which is I've got things in my head that I want to make. I've got feelings that I want to experience in the room. I've got visuals that I want to bring to life on stage or even bits of script that, that strike me that I want to say. Right. And I don't really know any other way of doing it. But, but, but that does also mean that my market is smaller. My audience is smaller. So if, if you're sort of an artist that's out there and you have a thing in, your, in inside of you that, and, and you feel like it really does need to manifest in the world around you, then I suppose the only question is, what's, what's the risk, right? I think a lot of people don't make the thing that they really want to make because they feel like it would be a risk to put that into the world. And I think the real risk of putting a thing that you truly believe in into the world is that it could fail. Or have people not like it. But I mean, people will not like it. Yeah, right. Regardless of what it is, there will be people that don't like it. I don't like Miley Cyrus, but her career is doing quite well. Yeah, she's fine without you. She doesn't need me, no. right? Like, so, so even the most commercial kind of performance is going to have people that don't like it. And, and this is a problem that I think might be more pronounced in magic than maybe in other art forms, is the idea of being commercial across the board. But it's kind of like, you know, the expression of, like, oh, it's vanilla, that expression of like, oh, it's vanilla ice cream or whatever. The thing is that there are people that really love vanilla ice cream. I don't know anyone that really loves a generic magic show. So that expression of like, oh, it's vanilla isn't even the right way of speaking about it. Yeah. Right? Because the, the, the piece of art that aims to please every single human being on earth is going to have no direction, no fire, no power, no passion. And right? therefore no art. And, and no art and no connection with anyone. So like... If you can really take on board the idea of there will be people that not only dislike what I'm doing, but people that will hate it, hate it, not just dislike it, but hate it, that will think it's the worst thing they've ever experienced, that will think it was a waste of their time. If you can take that on board and live with that, then it's kind of liberating. Right. And once you go into that path, it kind of fuels you, it kind of excites you in some way, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. And... and uh, this is where that whole that whole philosophy of it being a mirror kicks in, right? Like, because the thing about Miley Cyrus obviously is kind of an offhanded comment, but it's also a really easy way to think about it. What what difference to Miley Cyrus' life does it make that I don't like her music? No, nothing. So <laughs> so in that moment, there's the risk. There's the worst thing that can happen. Someone dislikes the art. And everyone's still okay. Everyone's going home at night. Everyone's still breathing. Yeah. Right? Like, it, it's not that bad. And I suppose that the final thing that I do personally is separate out in my own mind the idea of me, the mind reader, and me, the human. Right. Because then it's not... If someone hates my show, they don't hate me. 
They don't know me. They hate this version of the mind reader that I've brought to life on stage. They hate the work. Yeah. So, so the work and the human are always separate things. So I think it's, it's really the most powerful thing that I can do in my own mind to allow me to do these things, to be brave, is to, one, separate out who I am from the work, and two, to understand that even at its worst, it's okay. Yeah. Like, even if someone doesn't like it, it's okay. Not everyone's going to like what you do. And that's fine. Yeah. I, I kind of would rather people come to a show. I, I would rather get an audience that is exactly split 50-50, loving the show passionately and hating it passionately. Which is a lot of people hating your show when you have a thousand people. Right. right? <laughs> but, I would, but I would rather that. I would rather 500 people in a thousand hate it than let's say 975 think it's okay. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. As long as there's still 500 that love it passionately. The trade-off is that, you know, for me, the people that really connect so powerfully and so deeply to it, they're kind of the real reward to being brave. Right. So I'd rather get, I'd rather at least aim for something that's distinctive and expressive than try and just do something that everybody will say is okay. Yeah, you makes know? sense. So that that's kind of it, I suppose. And, and I suppose the final thing is just, just like knowing that everybody fails. Like, there's, there's a thing in magic where, and I don't really know why this started. It might be because magic's so framed around buying and selling of information. But there's this idea that certain idols are placed on pedestals in magic because oh, they're, they're, they're unquestionable, right? But I can, I can say, I think I can say it with 99% certainty, there's not a single person in the magic community, a, a performer, that hasn't done a bad show. Right. The only, the only way is when they don't do shows. Which... Right. Yeah, the only way to never have a bad show is to not do any. And they're around. I'm sure they are. Sure <laughs> they they are. are around. But I think it's really counterproductive to like continue this idea that, that, like, I've had bad shows. I have struggled. I have taken 15 or more years now uh, to get to a point where my shows are consistent, at uh, uh, base level, they're consistent. Even the nights that I think are bad, others will say, like, oh, no, that was enjoyable. It was really good. You know, because your, your barometer changes as you right. get a bit better. And you've never seen your show. I've never seen it, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, at the beginning, uh, I didn't, it didn't, this wasn't a thunderbolt that came out of the sky fully formed. Of course. Right? This was years of, of, of actually struggling and failing. Right? No, so, so I think a big problem for people that have got this brave idea that they want to do is that they're, they're, one, they're frightened to fail, and two, they think that they don't have permission to. Right, and they're afraid to get their hands dirty. Yeah, and, and if you remove those two fears, the fear of failure itself, and also the, the idea that if you were to fail, it would somehow be a bad reflection. Well, let me tell you, if you're listening, every single person that you admire in your industry, every single person that you think is the best that they could ever be, whoever it is that you watch and you think, I could never be as good as that person, I have them. I watched footage of Ricky Jay, I watched footage of René Lavonde, Michael Weber, Max Maven, there are many people in my life that I watch in awe. And I think to myself, I will never get to that level of brilliance. And, and it's true. Uh, of course it is. And you will, but you will be you. Oh, I'll be a version of myself for sure. But, yeah. the, but the thing is, I know that there were nights that Ricky Jay walked out and it didn't work. Right. Until one day it did. Yeah, and for him it came quite late too, right. I think. Yeah, for sure. 
he's sort of joined performance late as well. Like did it early in his life, had a break, and then back, came back. But like regardless, whoever, whoever your idol is, whoever you think is the greatest, that that you know for you is the most amazing connection that you find artistically. If you build them into this infallible energy, it makes it harder for you to admit your own failure, right? Like, and and I think magic's very bad at that, at being honest about the real challenges of making a thing. Oh, for sure. You know, and 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 then consequently also of being able to exchange in very honest expressions and very honest and candid conversations. Because often there's that ego behind. There's a, I think there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of, um, there's a real desire to hide vulnerability. Yeah. Right. But the truth is to make a thing and to put it on a stage in front of people that are going to make judgments about you is the ultimate act of vulnerability. One of the choices that you make that makes you risky and who you are is that you embrace to use your own language, you embrace the aesthetics of these kind of oracles. So mm. you say like tarot cards, you do uh, palm reading. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know what else, but uh, and, and, and astrology. So what is your view on that? Like what to you, like do they have, does, do tarot cards to you have some kind of energy in these pieces of paper? How do you see these things work and, and what is kind of your point of view on the esoterics? Yeah. So I suppose this is a two part and I'll, and I'll try and do it quite quickly right. uh, just so we can wrap things up. But I'll try and be as precise as I can. So there's, there's a distinction here between my personal kind of feelings on the objects and, and whether or not they're supernatural or powerful or useful or lies or whatever they might be. And then there is the other one, which is the artistic expression the objects allow me. Right. So artistically, I am very drawn to the aesthetics of mystery. So I think things like tarot cards and palm reading and crystal balls and stuff like that, uh, very often they verge on the cliched, but that also gives me a place to reinvent them, right? So if they look cliched, it means that I can now reframe them in a way that makes them modern and interesting. So fighting against the cliche is actually quite quite useful. And I think they provide strong visual drama. Sure. Show. So that's like the kind of the stagecrafty version is that they provide me with visual drama. Um, the personal version is that I... I don't think any of those things are supernatural, right. right? I don't think any of that stuff. I don't think the I Ching. I don't think tarot. I don't think, um, you know, uh, you know there, there's countless versions of, you know, how to predict the future. Like, like gemstone. I mean, yeah, never ending, right? Like, you know, there's, there's a story in, a, in an ancient Roman book on history about a uh, single soldier sneezing the moment before the, the whole battalion was to go into a war. And because of that single sneeze, nobody marched forward because in those days... A sneeze before a battle was a sign of impending doom. So it's like, you know, like, do we think a sneeze is supernatural? No, I don't think so, right? But, you know, but I think each of them have their own usefulness depending on how you choose to use them. Right. It's like saying, you know, do you think a hammer can, can, can be harmful? Well, yeah, I do think a hammer can be harmful. I think if someone hits me in the head with a hammer over and over again, it will harm me. But equally, I think a hammer can build a hospital that will help me. Right. So, you know, the object itself is not the object of derision, right? It's the, the intent and the perspective. So, like, tarot, for me, is visual storytelling. It's a form of understanding the human condition. It's based on ancient archetypes. I don't think the hands of the gods are conspiring to arrange the cards in a set order based on my predetermined destiny, which might have been, an, an, you know, a more archaic view of the tarot. 
I think basically the tarot at its core is two people looking at a picture and using it to connect to things that matter to them. And to generate meaning through this, these, the symbols that are presented. Yeah, it's literally a way to fire the imagination. And at that point, it's no longer a conversation about the esoteric. It's a conversation about a conversation. Right. You know, so, so I, I'm always kind of a little perplexed by the level of, not outright anger, but like there's, there's sometimes like a very disdainful attitude from magicians to things like tarot. And I, and I, I mean, frankly, I kind of want to say back to those people that, that talk to me like that about it. I kind, of, I kind of want to go like, yeah, have you ever read anything about tarot? Do you know anything about this? Have you got any <laughs> idea about the thing that you're, you know, so angrily protesting against? Or are you just imagining that it's a bunch of people pulling scams about curses? Because I tell you, if you walk into like any kind of new age store and you look at the tarot section, that tarot section is going to be full of things like archetypal therapy and tarot. Young and the tarot. It's more psychology than it is superstition. Right. In the real people that are really practicing those things. Those communities have moved way past the superstitions of the supernatural. So I always think it's a bit odd when magicians criticize those things with no real understanding of when them. When they know nothing about it. And I think it's equally odd that, that very many of those same magicians will criticize those things while then standing on stage pretending that they're reading body language. Totally agree. As if that's somehow better than reading tarot cards, for example. So I think it's a very, it's obviously a tricky subject, but personally, I think those things are useful and beautiful, the tarot specifically, useful and beautiful, and I enjoy them, and I do use them on stage, but I also don't pretend that I believe anything other than what I've just explained them to be to my audience. Right. I don't introduce them as being supernatural. I, in fact, directly introduce them as the opposite. Because I think it's more interesting to talk about them as these images and symbols that can be explored than to pretend that there's some kind of fairy dust in them. Which isn't what you believe. It's not what I believe. And I just don't, also, I just don't think that's as interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, dramatically, theatrically, right? Like, in a theatre, I don't mind if someone tells me a lie. Right? Like, that's the best place to tell a lie is on a theatre stage, right? Like, every play you've ever seen is a lie. You know, the, the postman didn't knock twice, you know, like, it, it, but for me personally, it's more interesting to talk about them in this modern way than it is to talk about them in an archaic way. Yeah, and you sort of like with this perspective, you bring about a new balance yeah. to people's understanding of the I esoteric. Mean, hopefully, yeah, and hopefully it, it, it's a case of like, it kind of removes you a little bit from the snake oil as well. You know, like, because yeah. obviously there are a large number of people that that's only encounter with tarot would be through Miss Cleo on the TV or something like that, that is trying to sell a very archaic notion of, you know. And I think, I think that beautifully kind of, uh, you know, this, perspe this perspective brings about, you know, brings another whole thing into the Q&A, the question and answer performance that you do, which is also being responsible to the kind of message that you're delivering when it comes to... I'm, I'm ultra aware of that. And, and the reason I think I'm maybe ultra aware of that message and that responsibility is because I do embrace the aesthetic of the mystery. Right. So even though I don't ever say like, oh, I'm psychic, because I'm not, so don't say that, uh, I don't ever make direct claims of any power, but there are implicit claims because of the aesthetic that I'm drawn yes. to. So I'm ultra aware of the message, right? Like, I, I don't do private readings. You can't buy a reading after the show or anything like that because, to me, the show would be a false advertisement of the reading. 
Because right. if I were to do a private reading, it would be a straight up tarot. There would be no magic methods in place. So if you've just seen me do blindfold Q&A and then you buy a reading, well, that's a very different thing, right? So, so like, I'm ultra aware of that message because of the implicit claim of the aesthetic. Um, but like, I don't really have a disclaimer, and I've said this for many years, which is the easiest way to, to, uh, to be clear about what you're doing to an audience is not the disclaimer, which is like language that's written to be confusing, like a politician. I use my five known senses to create the illusion of six. What does that mean? <laughs> it's not a disclaimer. That's not a, that's not a disclaimer. That's that's like double verbal talk. verbal misdirection or some kind. Double of talk, right? right? A disclaimer would be to walk out on stage and say, "I am not really doing any of what you're about to see." That would be the only straightforward disclaimer, right? All of that other stuff is double talk. So instead of instead of having to put a disclaimer on the show, just don't make crazy claims. Right. Don't claim something that you're going to have to disclaim. Correct. So if you come to my show, I don't make crazy claims. I just do the thing, and it's all up to you to work out what it is. Yeah. You know, and publicly in, in newspaper interviews and all the rest of it, people ask me about this. I say, you know, what I do mixes truth and fiction. My job is to create a feeling of uncertainty. I'll never tell you what's real and I'll never tell you what's fake. But interestingly, probably what you think is real is fake and what you think is fake is real. So right. I'll leave you to decide. So I, I build myself as an artist whose job is to produce the feeling of uncertainty, not as a psychic, not as a clairvoyant, not as a spirit medium, not as a magician. Right, just as right. an artist in this, in uh, whose medium is uncertainty. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, so to wrap this up, can you give us three predictions that's going to happen by the end of this year? Okay, so uh, Jermaine predicts that within six months from today, an astonishing news story will break. A news story about a cast member of a British reality television show called Love Island, who will find themselves on a transatlantic flight, who they will trigger a security meltdown. A security <laughs> meltdown will happen when their breast implant explodes. Okay. It will change the way that all of us will fly from this point onwards. Wow. Uh, Jermaine predicts that within four days from you listening to this, that's right, Jermaine can even predict when you will listen. Within four <laughs> days from today, there will be a major scandal about the next Samsung phone. There's going to be another issue, this time not with batteries, but with components. Two of the components are going to work against each other to create, again, a problem with overheating. This time not, revol not resolving in fires, but in just overheating. But it'll be another big problem for Samsung in their phones. And the final prediction is that the artist formerly known as Prince is alive and living in a bottle bank. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I predict your run at Edinburgh is going to be a tremendous success. And if you guys haven't seen the show, fly to Edinburgh and see it just like I did. You will not regret it. Thank you very much, Luke Thank, Thank you. That's a handshake slap. Yeah, there we go.